Good morning, good morning. Can you hear me? Beautiful. Today is a good day because today we begin a new journey together. Now, if you hadn't noticed yet, perhaps you have as you were uh, eating Thanksgiving, finishing off your pumpkin pie or sweet potato pie. For, we need to settle that debate first. Are you a pumpkin pie person or a sweet potato pie person? Oh, a lot of sweet potato people. Apple, okay, my man. There it is. Beautiful, beautiful. As you were perhaps finishing your meal, perhaps you heard it. Perhaps you heard it and it was just a small sound that perhaps caught you off guard. Do you know what that sound was? It was the sound of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. <laughs> breaking, <laughs> breaking into the world once again. Did you guys see that ad that she, she put out like four weeks ago? This is four weeks ago, far too early for Christmas music. Uh, she, she put out this ad of herself encased in ice and the, the tagline was just, it's time. <laughs> it was just her uh, singing super loud, like this high-pitched note. It shatters the ice. And then all I want for Christmas is you blares over the speakers. So perhaps you have noticed that with the end of Thanksgiving comes the Christmas season. And it's that time of the year when all of our favorite Christmas artists come out of their little caves and we get to listen to them once again. Um, Brilliant marketing strategy, by the way. I feel like Mariah Carey probably gets like a million dollars richer every Christmas. It's brilliant on her part. Like, I respect the grind. At, le at, at the least, we respect the grind. <laughs> nice. Well, we are delving into a new journey for the next four weeks. And so in honor of that, let us pray together as we do. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for being here with us. God, your presence is a promise. Would you now be here? As we read your words, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen, 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 amen. I love Christmas. And this year is no exception. I love it because we get to dwell with a story that I think often is so familiar to us that perhaps we miss some of the richness hidden within. And so today we get to begin a journey where we're just going to linger. It's in, in particular on Luke chapter 2, verse 14. We're just going to linger for a little bit. We're going to rest. We're going to hang out. Um, Pastor Michael and I have been really excited about this. For months, we've been scheming and dreaming of thinking, man, what would it be, if, what would it be like if we just lingered on Luke chapter 2? Just one verse, Luke 2, 14. And we called it God of peace. Pondering the God who comes in peace. And so that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. I'd like to give this actually a subtitle today. Uh, we have here the title Prince of Peace, but I'd like to give this sermon series a little subtitle, at least for me, at least while we're here in Elevate. And here's the subtitle for you. It is Four Surprises About Who God Is. Four Surprises About Who God Is. Because that's the question on a lot of our hearts, isn't it? Often. Who is God exactly? Who is God? What is God like? And I think the Christmas story illustrates in a unique way what this God is like. What does he come for? What does he want? What is his agenda? So that's where we're going we're gonna to dwell today. And so my sermon title today is 
Glory to God. God appears to the powerless. God appears to the powerless. Let us begin. We may have heard the story a thousand times. Perhaps you have if you grew up in church like me. Or perhaps not if you didn't. Maybe if you're new to all this, that's totally fine too. By the way, we're so glad you're here if that's the case. Come and talk to me after. I already talked to one um, today, but four surprises about who God is. We may have heard the story of a thousand times, or perhaps none at all, on a night seemingly like any other in Bethlehem, a small city in Israel, approximately hmm, about 6,900 miles from Keene, Texas. This is a real place, Bethlehem, a small city, not a place in a fantasy land, Narnia or Middle Earth or some other place, but actually in reality, a real small town, just like Keene, Bethlehem. Shepherds watch their, their sheep at night. These shepherds are almost certainly not wealthy men, men of position, means, or even religious significance. Instead, just shepherds. And most likely not the owners of the herds either, for most, most owners of herds had hired help to watch their flocks by night. So these are probably working men, men that have been hired to do a job. So most likely, these men don't even own the herds they're watching. Instead, these are men of work, low in the social food chain. They don't have power, rather the opposite. They are moved by other people with power. They weren't taken on by a rabbi from a young age. Perhaps they have a trade, perhaps not. They aren't supposed to be the heroes in the story. They're side characters. They're not the main character. They are extras in the nativity scene. Perhaps they went to synagogue every Sabbath. Perhaps they didn't. Perhaps they are religious. Perhaps not. And then seemingly out of nowhere, out of absolutely nowhere, an angelic being appears with an announcement that would be remembered for thousands of years. The shepherds, according to the text, are terrified out of their minds. We can imagine their shock at encountering messengers of the living God in the real stuff of reality. They don't have a paradigm for otherworldly beings showing up in power and might, radiating the glory of God. The glory of God, an interesting word, a word that in the original language means the weight, the appearance, or even the reputation, the very tangible reputation of God in physical reality. Appearing out of nowhere, it descends on them like a thunderclap in the air. And suddenly, it seems they recognize their place in the world very, very apparently. They are created beings in need of a savior. Further, there seems to be cause for fear. For why else would a being of such power appear on a mortal plane? Why else would a divine being cross the cosmic infinity to speak to mortals? This God, he must come with wrath. It's the only answer. Perhaps some who grew up in the synagogue, they were, perhaps some of them remember the prophets and how they spoke of the day of the Lord, a day of joy, yes, but also of justice and judgment and of peace. And so the text says they were filled with great fear. And my question for you is, wouldn't you be and wouldn't I with the encounter of such a powerful being 
confronted with a being that radiates the very reputation of God himself as justice and holiness incarnate, would we not respond just as the shepherds with trembling, with fear? Would, would not we too be terrified? Would not our minds race to every sin committed, every moment we wandered or doubted, every time in the desert when we forgot about God and just did whatever we wanted, every deed done in the dark? Like Job, when confronted with God, would we not simply recognize that we are specks of dust in the palm of infinity? And yet, and yet, the angel seems to notice their fear and says something a little shocking. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, the first part is shocking in and of itself. Fear not. It's already a scandal. Fear not in the face of such magnificent disparity. The scene, it feels like something out of a sci-fi movie or something. Speak in my language. I'm already in because it's so crazy. Um, the messenger opens his mouth, and the first words he says are not bow before me, are not become prostrate, are not serve me, but rather don't fear. No need to be afraid. Not the words that we would expect to hear from a being of such power. If you were with us through the month of October, we were journeying through a series called Fear Not, all about fear. Perhaps some of you who weren't um, didn't catch it, but that's okay. Essentially, we were talking about all the moments where Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And how they often surprise us. But before Jesus was born, God comes to announce the same thing to people. Fear not. But there's a little more to the announcement. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, the angel says. Here we find another interesting thing. This announcement, whatever it is, is a word of joy. Not a word of fear, not a word of anger, not a word of judgment, but a word of joy. How surprising. How, how odd, how, how fantastical it is, it seems. Almost seems like a fairy tale, too good to be true. This being with infinite power comes with a word of joy. In a world where religion all too often ends up being an exercise in exclusivity, this God comes not only with a word of joy, but with a word of joy for all people. A word of joy for everyone. And so the question that we may ask today then is, what is this word of joy? What is the good news this angel comes to bring? The angel proclaims it next. He says, in Bethlehem, this small city, unto you a child is born. A baby is the word of joy. A baby comes this angelic being comes to announce not a global takeover or wrath and fire, but a baby being born. And then he says something interesting that we're going to linger on for the next few weeks. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These are the words upon which we will rest. But for today, just briefly, for a couple more minutes, I want to linger on the word glory. 
I'm struck most of all, I think, in the story of the how of glory. The how of glory. How does glory happen? How does God get glorified? Why is it that glory interacts with people in such a way? How does the glory come to man in this story? To answer, we turn to another shepherd, a familiar one named David. Perhaps you know who I'm talking about, found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. We find the story of a prophet named Samuel who comes to a man named Jesse and says, I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. And Jesse says, you know, as the story is told, many of us know the story. He lines up all of his sons and he says, here are all my sons. Which one is going to be the next king? And Samuel goes down the line, right? He looks at each one, right, as the story is told. If you've seen the VeggieTales version, perhaps, um, he goes to each one and he's like, man, something's wrong here. He gets to the end and one is missing. He says, uh, in the words of, of Spanish that I'm still learning, I'm, I'm trying to learn Spanish, by the way, this is all on the side. Uh, I am in the process of uh, practicando mi español a little bit because I'm supposed to be your pastor, but I don't know Spanish, so I'm, I'm trying to learn. You have to be patient with me. So I've been asking many of you, hey, how do I say this? Como se dice pineapple in Spanish? I'm trying to learn Spanish. And I was uh, just talking well, with the Ramirez family who are here. And uh, they told me that instead of saying gay to someone when you don't understand what they're saying, it's much more polite to just say mande. Is this true? Okay, nice. Okay, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. Slowly but surely. Silly but surely. So I, uh, all this to say, this is all just all of that elaborate backstory, just to tell you that I imagine Samuel the prophet when he got to Jesse's house and he got to the end of the line of brothers and he just said to himself, Monday? <laughs> because none of them were the king. Where's the king? He must have thought. The story tells us. And so the story, the text tells us, he looks at Jesse and says, Are there, do you have any other sons? Something's wrong here because God told me to come here. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, there's one more. He's the youngest. Uh, he's out in the fields, but you, you don't want to talk to him. In Samuel's eyes, I imagine, they perk up his ears. He says, oh, interesting. Can you bring him here? What's interesting in the text is that in this little moment, the word that's used for youngest when Jesse says, yeah, he's just the youngest. This is 2 Samuel chapter 16. He says, yeah, this is ju he's just the youngest. He's out in the field. The word that he uses, it means the smallest. But deeper than that, it doesn't only mean the smallest. It means the, the least significant, the least important. It's a word, I really like the way that the Mount's uh, Hebrew dictionary puts it. The smallest, and by extension, the, the lesser in status, insignificant, unworthy. So the shepherd, David, he's the youngest in his family, the most insignificant, the most unworthy. He's not destined to lead his family. That was for the oldest brother. He's destined to be a follower, at least by the culture's standards. And yet Samuel comes with a word for him, the least in the family, and says, you, you're the one. And so he comes, as the story goes, he comes, and Samuel says, it's you, you're the one, it's you. You're the king. And so as we ponder this word glory, it brings to mind the story of a king who was also once a shepherd, who the prophet, spoken to by God, says, you're the one. I choose 
you, the smallest, the most insignificant. It brings to mind how God seems to have in mind when he's looking about about the world, at least in this story. Who am I going to announce the coming of the Messiah to? Now, I can imagine in heaven, God's God as he's scheming, he's planning, you know, just in, you know, in his own God way. He's like, man, who am I going to announce this to? Should I go to King Herod? Should I go to the priest? Should I go to the religious system? After all, I set up the religious system, right? He set up the tabernacle. He created the sanctuary, right? He gave the plans to Moses. He said, make the sanctuary this way. Have the priests do this. There's, there's texts and texts and verses. We have Deuteronomy, we have Leviticus, right? Of all of the rabbinical laws and Levitical, uh, like all these laws and statutes about how the tabernacle is supposed to work, how the lamb is supposed to be slain, how the sacrificial system is supposed to work. These are all things instituted by God, good things. And yet God, he doesn't come to the temple. He doesn't come to the priests to tell them his Messiah is coming into the world. He goes to a group of unnamed, unknown side characters, the shepherds. The pieces of the nativity that, you know, they aren't crucial. So sometimes you might just leave them off the mantle if you're putting the nativity up there. They're not in, as important to the story, but after all, it's Mary and Joseph. They're the main characters, right? Jesus, the main character. And yet to God, the shepherds are the main character. How intriguing it is that in a world where we enjoy placing significance on people because of status and fame and money and notoriety, God looks for the smallest, the overlooked, the oppressed, the marginalized, those who are not in the forefront of society, but on the outside, the pushed away. I think it's no wonder that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those, I like the, uh, the way that the, uh, the New Living Translation translates it. It says, blessed are those who are needy and recognize their need for him. Re re blessed are those who are needy and recognize their need for him. The poor in spirit. Those who feel like they don't have what it takes. And I feel like this is a core message of Jesus, right? We see it over and over and over again. We see it in the, the moment when the widow with the little mite, she comes and she, she gives all that she has. She just has a little coin. It's her whole property and she gives and Jesus says, man, the faith of that woman, look at that. Look at her. Wow. It's all she had. It was almost nothing. Wow. Look at her. So powerful. So incredible. We see it in the story of the Good Samaritan where God, where Jesus, he tells the story of this man who was ostracized by the very audience that he's speaking to. He says, man, but this person from that group that you detest, this person that you so often push away, man, that person, he was the one who did righteousness in God's eyes that day. He was a neighbor to that man. Incredible. It's no wonder that over and over again, Jesus seems to have eyes for those who are often not seen. For the woman who touches his robe, right? He's walking along in, in a crowd to go to do a miracle 
for a pretty prominent religious person, right? And then the robe, he feels power. He says he feels power. I felt power leave me, he says. Oh, interesting. And he turns around and there's a woman there. And yet he's on this important mission, right? Jairus' daughter is about to die. And yet he pauses. He makes time in his schedule for this woman. With this problem, she probably feels invisible. And yet he makes time for her. He says, oh, how great is your faith? Because she thought if only she could touch the hem of his garment. And Jesus seems to get excited by that. He gets excited by that. It seems. Man. So it's no wonder then that God brings his announcement of the Messiah to a group of shepherds, unnamed, anonymous, unimportant, unpowerful. And his glory descends like the weight of a million pounds in the atmosphere. And the shepherds are terrified. And yet God's glory that he brings, his reputation, really his character, because glory in the original language, it's all about who is God? What is his character? What is his reputation in the world? What is his character like? And so God in his character, he comes to shepherds. And the announcement that he brings is good news of great joy for all people. What does it mean that God's glory comes to the small? What does it mean that God's glory comes to the insignificant? Well, it really means one thing for us. That if you've ever in your life felt like you didn't have what it takes to follow Jesus, if you've ever in your life felt felt unworthy, insignificant, pushed aside, that if you've ever in your life felt like, man, God, I just don't know if I can live up to this. If you've ever in your life had moments of doubt, if you've ever in your life had moments where you felt like, I don't know if I still believe it. If you've ever in your life felt like, man, how could God love me? If you've ever in your life looked at the list of things in your life that you've done, mistakes that you've made, your past, if you've ever in your life felt unworthy, This story says, the glory of God comes to you and says, I have good news. I'm sending a Messiah for you. I'm sending a Messiah for you. See, I think it's no coincidence that God comes to a group of shepherds watching sheep, tending their sheep by night. It's no coincidence that God comes to a group of shepherds who watch sheep. Because this announcement is not only two shepherds about a Messiah who's a person, but this Messiah would actually be a lamb. This Messiah would actually be the culmination of the entire history of Israel's sacrificial system. And he comes to be a lamb. To be a lamb not just for Israel, not just for the elite, not just for the religious, but for everyone. Man, I love this story. It all reminds me of um, Bill, Bill Wasick. I think I'm saying his name right. I think I got a picture of it. Bill Wasick. 
He's the, um, what, the editor for the New York Times, and he is self-proclaimed father of the flash mob. You guys know what a flash mob is? Oh, a flash mob is so fun. I think I have a couple of pictures. A flash mob essentially is this, it's this concept where a group of people, they pre-organize this like planned journey where they appear in a public location and either to music or to choreography, they create this like unified choreographed performance. And it's the way that it's orchestrated is often just sort of seemingly random. So you'll watch videos of it. You can look this up on YouTube, you watch videos of it. And you just like one person just starts tapping their foot. And then all of a sudden one other person walks out of the crowd. I don't know why I immediately went to Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal. <laughs> so that's what I've been listening to this week. Um, and all of a sudden it just, it just builds and builds and there's more and more people, there's more and more people. And all of a sudden, it just creates this grand performance. I think I have another picture. It, cre it creates this grand performance. This is a group of guys who decided to have this like incredible like smorgasbord of suits where they all just decided we're going to show up downtown all wearing our best suits. Like this huge, this massive Facebook group of like 500 people. Um, so it takes on all these different forms. But Bill Wasick, he says that he created the flash mob, and he says he really he really just did it just because he wanted to see if he could you know, do something that would sort of break the mold. Um, but it reminds me of this, this flash mob video that I saw this week. Um, incredible. It starts off with this, this cellist playing um, Ode to Joy by Beethoven. You know, joyful, joyful, right? He starts playing it. And, uh, oh, no, I skipped, I skipped a part. I wanted to show you the video, but there's copyright issues with it, so I didn't get to. But it starts off so incredibly interesting because there's this cellist. He's just playing, right? And he has this hat out, you know, right, taking coins. And this little girl out of nowhere, out of the crowd, there's a few people watching. This little girl, she walks up. She's wearing this little pink shirt. She walks up. And she gives him just a little penny. She puts it in the hat. And then he goes from just playing, you know, something else. And he switches into Ode to Joy. And then all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, this is like downtown Rome in Italy. Out of the woodwork, more and more musicians just come out of nowhere. They're just appearing. They come out of the crowd. There's like a violinist. And he... He steps out and he starts playing. And then there's another cellist and then another cellist and another one. And then more violinists, viola players, people on flutes, trombones, saxophones. All of a sudden, a whole orchestra comes out of nowhere in the middle of this crowd and they're all playing this tune, Ode to Joy. And of course, everyone knows Ode to Joy. So people are stopping and a whole crowd forms. And all of a sudden, before they know it, it's a massive performance with a full-blown blown orchestra and choir all performing Ode to Joy. And I really loved it. I love watching it because it made me think of the annunciation of the angels to the shepherds. How out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, these angels appear with an announcement to the world. But the part that I felt the connection the most was the little girl with the penny. She just has this little penny. It's all she has. Seemingly insignificant. This little girl in a world of politicians and famous people, people with power, armies, 
This little girl, for a little penny, she drops it in the hat. And in response, this whole orchestra creates a moment of magnificence, all for her. And it just made me think of you and me, how God is the same way. How seemingly in an infinite universe, God looked across time and space and he saw you. And he said that you are worth the orchestra. That you are worth the music, the music of my son, the music of his life and his death, his resurrection for you. And so I guess back to our original question, man, how does God get glorified? He gets glorified because he comes to save you. His love is an orchestra. And I guess the challenge for us is are we willing, like the little girl, to just engage, to just step down and say, God, this is all I have. This is it's all I have. Like the widow with her penny, like David, the shepherd, are we willing to just say, God, here I am. This is all I have. And God, at least I've experienced in my life, that every time we do that, he says, perfect. It's more than enough for me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you are an orchestra, God. Your love is greater than any symphony. And God, the announcement of your coming in Luke chapter 2, we recognize and we see, God, that you come in a very strategic way. God, you come to make an announcement to those who feel like they're, they're poor, who feel like they have nothing to give, who feel like maybe they've been left out. I feel like maybe they've forgotten, God. Maybe they remembered or they believed it at one point, but it's fallen away. God, to each one of us, you say, you may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. Your birth is an announcement of joy and life to each one of us. So let us engage with it. Let us respond. Let us say yes to the music today. We pray this in your name. Amen.